The problem with pyramidology and Egyptologists trying to establish that pyramids were simply a tomb and that there was a practice, a practice sort of a pseudo-archaeological evolutionary process whereby pharaohs would practice and practice and practice their archaeological acumen, their pyramid building skills, and then all of a sudden they finally built up to the great pyramids on the plains of Giza, and then for no clear reason whatsoever that technology absolutely disappeared, it just doesn't hold water. The problem with that is in twofold. Number one, the archaeological discovery does not bear that out. You cannot make a case that the pyramids were ever intentionally designed as tombs. Were they used as tombs? Absolutely. But just because you use something doesn't mean it was designed for that. I use a butter knife all the time as a flathead screwdriver, but it was not designed for that. And the successive generations that came along in Egypt used those, claimed those, as kings have a way of doing that, uh, I remember years ago, um, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan who used Bruce Springsteen's song, Born in the USA. Well, that song wasn't even a pro-USA song, but as politicians seem to appropriate certain songs, so I'm sure that some of the kings, the pharaohs came along and appropriated some of these pyramids. But they were never designed as tombs. You can't prove that. The other problem is, is that they, they come out of nowhere. What you have is not an evolution in archaeology. You have a degradation in archaeology. What you have is out of the clear blue, these anomalies of technology, these anomalies of archaeology, and then you have people trying to come back and reproduce, trying to, to do that, and they're never able, ever able to quite able to do that. And the question always, always is why? How did they show up from nowhere? And that's really where we left off with the Stargate conspiracy and shamanism. The book written, The Stargate Conspiracy, by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince, on page 345, I read the paragraph that we left off where the author state this, in a nutshell, forms the problem of the origins of the knowledge of the ancient Egyptians such as how they built the impossible Great Pyramid. Techniques appeared to come out of nowhere without any apparent process of logical or historical development. Since no archaeological evidence of stage-by-stage stage technological development has been found, it can be assumed that the process never occurred. Now, this may seem crazy, but were all the failed pyramids predating those of the Old Kingdom? The only alternative seems to be that the ancient Egyptians learned their techniques whole and fully formed from somebody else, a lost civilization or visiting extraterrestrials, perhaps those have been the two prevailing thoughts. But what if there is a third way of obtaining useful and unique information? What if that third way is the way of the shaman, where knowledge is somehow obtained directly from its source, directly from the other side of the veil. The extraordinary botanical knowledge of the Amazonian people 
forms, in fact, an excellent and exact parallel to the building expertise of the ancient Egyptians. Not only should it lie beyond the skills of their time and place, but it also stands far in advance of today's scientific knowledge. Shamanism is considered to be a phenomenon of primitive societies, those who still live at roughly the level of the Stone Age, while surrounded by the extreme sophistication of the modern world. It was outgrown by the advanced cultures thousands of years ago. However, can we imagine that shamanistic rituals could be practiced as a culture moved from primitive to advanced, perhaps in even in, at even a more sophisticated level than is found in today's Amazonian rainforest? In other words, if you can tap into the other side, is it possible that the shamanistic practices advanced and bolstered by our modern technology have moved right along with history? Now this, and I'm digressing from the book here for just a minute, but this really feeds into something that's very fascinating. Again, we're talking about the connectivity of dots, the Thule Society, the idea that the Nazis were an occult group grounded in occultism, touched base with occultism, and that they were actually trying and using occultism to tap into advancements in technology. And then you think about Operation Paperclip, where we went in and got those Nazis, and the next thing you know, we got access to advanced technology overnight. Is it possible that shamanism is alive and well today? The phone you're holding the technology that you're using? Is that simply the mind of man achieving greatness or at some level, not idiot teenagers dancing around a bonfire, but at some of the highest echelon levels or the deepest rooms in Silicon Valley? Is there an ongoing process whereby men and women reach out beyond the veil to the other dimension and receive Information, power, techniques, in exchange, one could only imagine, for their soul. The writer goes on to say, if such a phenomenon could be conceived, what would be the limits of the knowledge obtained through the shaman's curious art? Several writers have recently noted clear signs of shamanistic influence at work in ancient Egypt. Andrew Collins, for example, has written of the shamanistic nature of the, quote, elder culture that he believes was responsible for the great achievements of Egypt. But he has also surmised that they developed the advanced techniques that enabled them to build the pyramids and carve the great sphinx. Could the priesthood of these elders in Egypt have been, in essence, a college of shamans free to apply their closely guarded techniques for purposes of pure research? Could the shamanic hypothesis explain how the pyramid builders knew how to quarry, how to transport, how to shape, how to position immense blocks of stone among many other baffling examples of their knowledge? It's very fascinating to me that when you look at the pyramid discoveries, how can they, how would you imagine that there would be a people that could build the pyramids and yet never figured out how to add any depth to their drawings and writings. Have you ever noticed that their paintings, that their drawings, that 
There's no advancement. There's no change. There's no depth. There's no development whatsoever. A people that can build the pyramid can barely draw at a third grade level. How does that happen? This would account, this would also account for an aspect of the ancient Egyptians' knowledge that has not been properly explored. It's curiously selective nature. While they are justly famed for their mysterious expertise in building, pyramid, uh, building pyramids, there are certain areas that perhaps bizarrely appear to have been unknown arts to them. We have noted that despite the use of colossal granite and limestone blocks and the extraordinary skill used in shaping them, the walls of the Valley Temple at Giza have been built in an oddly primitive way. And one sophisticated architectural feature completely missing in ancient Egypt was the arch. Perhaps this has become the development of the arch, or perhaps this is because the development of the arch requires a conceptual leap, and its construction requires a theoretical knowledge of weight distribution. Maybe this is also the reason why the Egyptians do not seem to have mastered the art of ridge building. Recently, French Egyptologist Jean Curciel has argued persuasively that cracks in the granite slabs forming the ceiling of the king's chamber were not as previously thought, the result of an earthquake that happened while the Great Pyramid was actually under construction. This, he suggests, was because the builders did not understand the consequences of working with two materials, limestone and granite, of different composition, which would compress at different rates under the enormous weight of stone pressing down on them. Now, if Curciel is correct, this would also cast doubt on the theory that the cavities above the king's chambers were intended as stress-relieving chambers for the building. We have also observed that Amazonian shamans receive specific answers to specific questions, such as the herbal recipe for the cure for a specific illness, but rarely more or less than this is needed. And this is key now. The same appears to be true for the Egyptians, who appear to have had information only about, for example, ways of moving huge blocks of stone, because bridges and arches needed new concepts of building. They never asked the right questions in order to be told how to build them. They only received answers to the questions that they asked. A la Ouija board. The Stargate Conspiracy goes on to say, could this be how the Dogon have such an otherwise inexplicable knowledge of the Sirius system, a tribe in Africa, the Dogon, if the Amazonian shaman can directly obtain information about the chemical properties of the plants, could they not have asked their guides, quote, tell us about the brightest star in the sky, that one there? There are some very clear and sometimes strikingly precise parallels between the religion of ancient Egypt and the shamanic visions described by Jeremy Narby in the Amazon. Narby cites the experiences of anthropologist Michael Harner among the Kanibo Indians of the Peruvian Amazon in the 1960s. Harner himself took the shaman's hallucinogenic drink, and later he wrote, quote, For several hours after drinking the brew, I found myself, although awake, in a world literally beyond my wildest dreams. I met bird-headed people, as well as dragon-like creatures, who explained that they were the true gods of this world. Again, we divert from the book and stumble into the connectivity. My brother used to work at a 
Union Gospel Mission in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He ran the thing for quite a while with a good man by the name of John. Drunkards, drug addicts, they see things. We laugh about them seeing snakes on the wall, the pink elephant. Is it simply a conjuring of their mind? Or is it so possible to alter the chemical state of the mechanism of the mind that however deluded, however conceptually inaccurate, they are actually seeing something there? What actually happened to Gehazi's servant? What did God actually do to allow him to see the armies of God there? Why could the donkey of Balaam see the angel, but not Balaam? Why is it that so many of our young people now on these drugs are committing such horrific crimes? There's something to this molecular structure, biochemical setup of the mind. Remember, we are indeed spirit, soul, and body. The Stargate conspiracy goes on. Bird-headed people, quote, the true gods of this world. This seems to be startling confirmation of the reality of the ancient Egyptian pantheon, which of course included the ibis-headed Thoth and the hawk-headed Horus, besides many animal-headed gods and goddesses such as the lioness-headed Sekhmet and the jackal-headed Anubis. If modern tribal shamans in their drug-induced ecstatic trances have access to the dimension where such beings live, could it not be that the shamanic priests of Egypt also knew the secret of speaking to the gods directly in this way? Interestingly, Harner himself noted the similarity between the bird-headed people of his vision and the gods of ancient Egypt, and it is inevitably and inevitably calls to mind a gentleman by the name of Saul Paul Sirag and Ray Stanford's vision of the hawk-headed spectra as described in chapter 5 of this book. In his review of world shamanism, Jeremy Narby noted many common features, such as the prevalence of snakes as imparters of wisdom. Please tell me you see the connection there. Snakes as imparters of wisdom, even in areas where there are no snakes. Certain themes reoccur in all shamanic visions, one of the most central being that of the latter joining heaven and earth, which the shaman ascends to meet the spirits of wisdom. Now, let's make sure we are clear. Because Jacob saw a ladder. Hmm. Narby also says, quote, They talk of a ladder or vine like the kind Jack crawled up the beanstalk. A ladder, a vine, a rope, a spiral staircase, a twisted rope ladder that connects heaven and earth, which they use to gain access to the world of the spirits. They consider these spirits have come from the sky and have created life on earth. And that is exactly how I think the rapture is going to unfold. It's going to be a viable part of the rapture. The book goes on to state, this, imagine, this imagery is found in the ancient Egyptian pyramid text. For example, in the Egyptian scriptures utterance 478, which speaks of Isis as the personification of the latter, it says, quote, As for any spirit or any god who will help me when I ascend to the sky on the ladder of the god, 
My bones are assembled for me, my limbs are gathered together for me, and I leap up to the sky in the presence of the God of the Lord of the ladder. Another utterance states, A ladder is knotted together by Osiris. A ladder is knotted together by Horus before his father. Osiris, when he goes to his spirit, one of them being on this side and the other being on that, while I am here between them. In other words, ascension to the Milky Way is a central theme of the pyramid texts. In Colombia, the the Ayahuasca vine is known as the ladder to the Milky Way. Recognizing the concept of shamanism in the pyramid text radically changes our understanding of the ancient Egyptians and their religion, and perhaps even the whole nature of human potential. Could it be that the central ascension of the king, noted in Egyptian lore, is not the description of his afterlife journey, as is always believed, but the shamanic flight to the other world, the realm of guiding spirits? That is what may have been undertaken. The two are not mutually exclusive, for the shamans know that the realm they enter when entranced is the portal to the eternal world of light, where the spirits of the dead are taken. So the pyramid texts can be read as a description both of shamanic and afterlife journeys. Traditionally, the journeying shaman is believed to have actually died to be resurrected when his soul returns. Wait a second now. Now, wait a second now. Let's be very careful because I think we have something similar to this in a connective way in 2 Corinthians where Paul said, whether out of the body or in the body, I cannot tell such a one called up into the third heaven. Hmm. That's very interesting. It's very, very interesting because it goes on to state not only that he was called up, and I'm going to reach for my Bible while we're sitting right here talking together just so that I make sure that I read it correctly and you hear it correctly because it's also there were certain things he wasn't allowed to talk about. It says it is expedient for me doubtless, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, it's expedient for me doubtless I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Is the shamanic practice an adulterated, sinful practice or sinful abuse of the mechanism that God uses in this case? He says, I knew a man in Christ, verse 2, above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth such a one called up to the third heaven. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he was called up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for man to utter. Why? What did he hear that was unlawful for him to utter in this dimension that he saw in the next? Hmm. So the Stargate Conspiracy states traditionally the journeying shaman is believed to have actually died to be resurrected when his soul returns although shamans are very special people born with a natural psychic gift they are nevertheless required to undergo fearsome initiations by ordeal the horrors of which impinge on both the physical and spiritual levels a classical feature of the shamanic initiation is a hellish out-of-body experience in which they appear to be torn limb from limb 
after which they are magically reassembled. As Stanislav Grof writes, the career of many shamans start by the powerful experience of unusual states of consciousness with the sense of going into the underworld, being attacked, dismembered, and then being put back together again and ascending to the supernatural realm. This is strikingly reminiscent of the story of Osiris in Egypt, with whom the king in the pyramid text is identified, who was cut into pieces by the evil god Set, but magically reassembled by his lover Isis in order to father the hawk god Horus, who is in turn regarded as the reincarnation of Osiris as well as his son. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As we have seen in the extracted utterances of Egypt in 478, Isis is identified with a legendary ladder, up which the reassembled king climbs to heaven, clearly a classic shamanic image. The role of Isis is particularly interesting because it portrays the feminine principle as being essential to the shamanic journey. In fact, the whole concept of female initiates has been sadly neglected, but perhaps for unexpected reason. At a London conference in October 1996 called The Incident, Jeremy Narby was questioned on why all the shamans he had mentioned in the talk were men. A good question. He replied that specially selected women often sit fueled with drugs involved in these shamanic practices. They embark on their out-of-body experiences as well. The women actually accompany them and share in their experience, and afterwards, when they have returned to normal consciousness, help them to remember what took place in those realms. But it is important point is that the women do all this without taking the ayahuasca. Clearly, Narabi stated, the female companions of the shamans have no need of the chemical aid for their spiritual flight. Why is not known? Possibly because women's roles have traditionally been of less interest to anthropologists. So the women don't need the chemical drug to enter into the altered state, which brings to mind why Satan came to Eve, not Adam. We have no record of Satan actually coming directly to Adam, only Eve. Which is why in 2 Corinthians and Corinthians, the Bible speaks about women and angels. Which is why in Genesis chapter number 6, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. There is no recorded instance there of those pure angelic beings those pure sons of God interacting with men directly initially. And these primitive Amazonians knew it all along. The mathematician, the cybernet and, and mythologist Charles Muses has written extensively on shamanism. As with most of his non-New Age mystical writings under the pseudonym of Musaeus, these are particularly incisive and persuasive. He has noted the nature of its essential significance. Quote, The point of shamanism is really not ecstasy, archaic or otherwise, or even healing, but rather the development of communication with a community of higher-than-human beings and a modus operandi for attaining an eventual transmutation to more exalted states and paths. The writer goes on 
to make the explicit parallel between this, the underlying objective of shamanism, and the religion of ancient Egypt. He equates the duat, the afterlife realm, to which the king travels of the pyramid texts, not with a mystical other world, but with a world similar to the Tibetan bardo, where spirits live between incarnations and which certain special people can visit during life. The pyramid text also speaks of the deceased being transformed into a body of light, which again may imply more than a straightforward afterlife existence. Charles Musset says, quote, The acquisition of a higher body by an individual meant also, by that very token, the possibility of communicating with beings already so endowed. In other words, anyone with a higher body can communicate with anyone else who exists in that light. Shamans, during their trips to the invisible realm, can make contact with all the higher beings who live there. In our opinion, Jeremy Narby's groundbreaking work on the shamanism has important implications for some of the recent theories concerning the origins of Egyptian wisdom, particularly those of the quote-unquote quote, ancient astronaut school. Proponents of such hypotheses, such as Alan F. Alford, tend to treat the myth and religious writings such as the pyramid text, in an excessively literal way. When the ancients tell us of the meetings with part animal, part man entities who descend to earth or to whom the priest descends or who impart specific information, such researchers assume these to be garbled stories of actual meetings with exotic beings from outer space making gods of astronauts. Shamans living in the Amazonian rainforest today regularly describe identical experiences, sometimes under the watchful gaze of modern anthropologists, without the least suggestion of a descending spaceship or visitor from a lost continent. But who, who are the entities from whom the shamans have always received their invaluable knowledge?'